everybody. I can't believe we're already in February. Uh, the good news is nobody has died. <laughs> I take that back. No, nobody has died, but the Academy Awards appear to be dying. Yeah. And and uh, Tim, let me let me just let me just put this out in front of you right now. We just they just announced it's coming Tuesday. Academy Award nominations, ninety fourth Academy Awards. Uh, this will be presumably the last Academy Awards from an Academy over which Don Hudson, who has been mm. CEO for 10 years or so plus. Has it this been that the, long? Yeah, really? It's been about a decade. And uh, the, the ratings have gone down pretty much every single year that she's been CEO. I'll let you make of that what you will. But uh, uh, she's leaving. And uh, in my opinion, none too soon. Nice lady, but I don't think she's done a good job. And, uh, and here, normally when we announce the Academy Awards, when they announce them, they'll bring on, you know, like some not top tier movie stars, but someone you're like, oh yeah, he or she won supporting actor last year or the year before. It's usually people, you know, it's usually like the Academy president or uh, an actress who won supporting actor, uh, actress or, you know, a supporting actor or, or some, someone who has made movies. This year, they are being presented by Leslie Jordan. And I know people are like, oh, who the hell's Leslie Jordan? He's he's the little guy from Will and Grace. Yeah. The, little, the little guy with the high voice. And Tracy Ellis Ross from Blackish. Yeah. But these aren't movie people. These no. are TV people. You um, couldn't you couldn't find any movie people to announce the movie nominations? Yeah, what's it's, going it's on? A, it's, a, it's a thing, man. It's a thing, and and, and look um, if, if for uh, for for Hudson. I, you, I I'm not sure it would have made it would have made any difference. You know, if she happened to be there. Her tenure was this tenure. Her tenure was the tenure, and during which uh, the movie industry that uh, has changed more than it probably has ever uh, since the, since the addition of television. <laughs> you know, since television came in and and, and movies went all freaky uh, 50, 60 years ago. Ago, 70 years ago um and here in and, and here she is and it is what it is um i and, and and i think the reason you don't see any movie stars uh you aren't going to see any movie stars what is that tuesday morning tuesday next yeah. tuesday morning yeah next tuesday morning um, february 8th announced those awards it's because at, at a minimum the line between these things has blurred right um, yeah. There are a great many movies, uh, which we uh, talk about I have uh, on film week, I, you know, the radio show, which have never been in a movie theater. Um, every week we talk about these movies that have never been in a movie theater and never will be in a movie theater. Um, uh, it, so, you know, that line has been blurred, I think, has some, something to do with it. And then, you know, uh, you, what, if you're a movie star, why, you know, what, what, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to go and <laughs> you know, I, if, I, I, I may not have any reason to do that. If I'm a movie star, I might be exactly wrong about that. Maybe if you're a movie star, that's a thing you should have lobbied to do, right? I'm a movie yeah. star and I'm yeah. gonna, I'm gonna go and, and maybe, but you know, it could go either way. It could go either way, but that line has been blurred. That's the big, big thing, I think. Um, and, and there you have it. Uh, and, and I think that line needs to be blurred back. You know, Spielberg was the guy who was pushing for a, a large, for longer windows and Netflix pushed back hard. And I think yeah. we, if we get to a day where Netflix is winning Academy Awards for movies that have never actually been seen or available to most people in a movie theater, it's the end of the business. It's the end of the Oscars. And I don't even like that Netflix is now a member of the MPA. The MPA, which used to be the MPAA, mm -hmm. uh, is for movie distributors. <laughs> it's a lobbyist for movie distributors, not people who make movies, for people who distribute movies. 
So, um, you know, Netflix should go join some other lobbying organization, but I think their presence in the MPA is, is a, is bad, is a mistake. And, uh, what I would do is I would say for the Academy Awards for eligibility, you need to be a feature length film that was released, not just into one theater before midnight on December 31st in LA or New York. No. Which is the thing that Netflix did. (laughs) No, no, no. You need, I would up that. I would say you need to have a six month window before you wind up on streaming. Six months. Six months. Make it a half a year. You need to be in theaters for a half a year. And you need to be not just in LA or New York. You need to have opened in LA and New York and two other cities somewhere else in the United States. Chicago, San Francisco, Houston, Miami, I don't care, Philadelphia, you name it. And you need to have played at some point in at least 100 theaters. That's all really tough. Um, It's not so tough in that it it, it wasn't, you know, the the sort of de facto dynamic 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. It was really just, you know, everything you said was probably what needed to happen. Now, though, um, what what would make that tough has more to do with revenue sources and revenue streams than anything else. Well, I'm trying to keep keep the theaters afloat. I'm trying to keep distribution alive and keep the theaters afloat. Yeah, you know, look, the, the good folks over at Disney Plus. And the good folks over at, uh, well, you know, Netflix and Amazon and all that kind of stuff, you know, they don't give a damn about I know at all, literally. Uh, uh, you know, if, if, if in some ways they would be very happy if every theater, you know, uh, every, every big theater anyway, in this, in this, every little theater, I should say, it, it would just close. They would love that. I know. Um, uh, and, and force everyone, uh, in, you know, in, in front of the television. So, and the thing of it is, they have so much money. Um, uh, uh, Netflix has an inordinate amount of money, far and away more money to play with making movies than the but, movie industry has but Netflix, to make movies. But dude, people are now looking at Netflix. Their, their stock took a hit. People are starting yeah. to say Netflix is, the competition has caught up. A lot of people are saying Disney's, Disney Plus is going to bury Netflix. And, and, uh, they're saying that the competition is catching up and it may have already caught up and Netflix may have already hit its peak. It might be a mature company now. It might which, be, but that's a lot. That's that's pretty powerful, mature company. Um, it is, it is. But but you know the it's interesting because there's this really really terrific um, uh, podcast with uh, Michael Eisner and uh, I'm forgetting the name of the, the journalist, New York Times journalist, mm. um, who who does this uh, this weekly podcast. She's very funny. I can't believe I can't remember her name. Um, but it's uh, it, 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 she did about a 45, 50 minute sit down with Michael Eisner. And he's very forthcoming. And I agree with most of what he says. I don't agree with all of what he says because he mm. comes at it from a CEO point, you mm. know, standpoint. He's talking about growing your company. And he talks about branding, you know, that the branding of all of these entities, Marvel and, and Lucasfilm and Pixar, the, all these things that he acquired, um, that that was designed to help Disney weather the storm because Netflix, he, you know, like he woke up one morning. This is a really interesting story. He woke up one morning and he realized that all these Disney movies on Netflix, he says th- that it was like, and I think his analogy goes like this. He says, it's like we were selling a third world company, nuclear weapons to use against us. Oh, 
And I, I and I thought that's really interesting. He just called Netflix a, a third world country. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but um, that's when they pulled all their licenses and they pulled all their content back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And right now, Netflix. And that's is- when Netflix decided to become a full fledged production studio because they that's realized it. eventually all of these uh, entities that, uh, that we're providing are going to take their stuff back, and we're going to have to have a library of our own. But the mistake Netflix is making, and Ted Sarandos has said that, is I think he said something to the effect of, hopefully I'm not misrepresenting, that Netflix's brand is that we have no brand, which I think is, a, is, is just dumb because people need to trust a brand. Iger, I, I, I was saying Eisner, uh, uh, Robert Iger. Bob, 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 Bob Iger. Bob, Bob Iger. Bob Iger, yeah. Iger in this podcast goes, uh, it's funny, Eisner to Iger. I get, I'm getting my <laughs> Disney CEOs convoluted in my head. Why? If that was, if there were screenplay, someone would say, I'm sorry, you cannot have two consecutive uh, CEOs with names that sound similar. You can't go from <laughs> Iger to Iger. You're just going to have to change your name. It's too confusing. Uh, but no, the uh, uh, Iger says that um, the, the whole Marvel logo, that big red logo, it was very deliberate. They wanted it to be big and logo and brandy and to impress itself on everybody before every movie. That before mm. you watch a Marvel movie, that Marvel logo punches you in the face, right? And you you now begin to trust that brand the same way you trust that that Disney castle, the same way you trust you know uh, uh, Luxor Junior bouncing out, you know, boink 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 boink, and then jumping on the Pixar <laughs> eye. Yeah. I mean, these are these are logos, and they're well thought out. And, uh, and, you know, that's what you need. You need a brand that people trust. If I look at, if I look at, uh, Netflix, okay, I get the end, shwung, you know, it shows yeah, up. You, in front. You, 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 you get that sound. I mean, that's, that's the thing. You hear that. But, 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 but what do I associate it with? What do um, I associate it with? Well, well, because it's, 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 let's remember that there was a moment when, you know, Disney, right, uh, decided that, um, they needed Hollywood pictures. That they needed, uh, what was the other one? The Hollywood pictures was like uh, Touchstone. Touchstone. It was Touchstone, right? Hollywood. Is, yeah. and, and, and basically, Disney was G. Uh, Hollywood was, you know, kind of RE, PG 13 E, RE kind of yeah. stuff, you know, uh, yeah. they could do there. And then, uh, and then Touchstone was, you know, you know PG 13, all, all that kind of stuff. So it was all, uh, pointed at very specific audiences, but it was yeah. all under the Disney umbrella. All right. Hollywood sure. pictures went away, what, 20 years ago? Um, uh, did, something like that. I mean, it's still, it's still, it, honestly, I think it still lives as a brand for things that they don't know any, what, what else to do with. Because I think there was, there was a Hollywood Pictures branded movie like two years ago. And it's the oh, only really? one, it's the only one over the last 15 years. And it went, it went straight to DVD or something. I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was clear that Disney couldn't, couldn't offload this to anybody. Didn't know what else to do with it. It didn't fit with any of the existing brands. So they went into the closet and they pulled out, they pulled out Hollywood. And they're like, well, you know, I missed that completely. But, yeah. but, you know, there was a moment when you, know, you had all these Hollywood pictures, pictures. And, and then that was Disney's sort of notion then, right? All yeah. of these different brands. So uh, Netflix, what would be bright for Netflix to do would be to do what Disney did back then. So that under that Netflix umbrella, uh, there would be these brands, uh, and, uh, and, and like, uh, you know, yep. Bloomhouse, you know, the horror, and, and they exactly. try to do that a little bit or, or whatever. Um, but you know, I, I, at, at the moment, it, it's all about subscriptions for them. Yes. Uh, as, as long as they maintain or, and, and, and grow, grow, grow. Everybody talks about grow. You gotta grow. You gotta grow. You know what? Do you? Do you? 
you have to perpetually See, grow, do you? I'm not sure that no, you do. You don't. And 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 uh, this goes down, you know, one of my favorite rabbit holes, which is that this and and again, Iger talks about this too. Uh, she asks him. It's very funny. Really, people have to listen to this. It, it, I mean, for example, she's so. Why can I not think of her name? This is going to kill me. Um, hang on a second. I'm going to. I'm going <laughs> to go look it up. I'm going to go look it up. But but <laughs> at one point, um, she she's talking about you know some of her her uh, anxieties about you know streaming and all that, and he says, "Well, yeah. you need to go. You need to go to Disney World." And and, <laughs> and she says, "She says, yeah, no, I don't." And he says, "You know, I." And and he said, and he says. Uh, uh, well, I was just there the other day, and and this is—I mean, it takes it takes some cojones to say this to Robert Iger. She says, "Where are you? Where are you really? Good for you. That's great." <laughs> I mean, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's so good. Um, it Really—I—I—I I, I don't listen to a lot of other podcasts. It's Sway. Kara Swisher. Kara Swisher is a New York Times journalist, and she has her Sway podcast. S W A Y. And uh, yeah, go check it out. It's it's you know, if you're listening to us, you can certainly spend some time listening to them. It's a terrific podcast. Yeah, I love and her. She's very, she's very droll. She pops up. Oh, she's, whole so, she's so droll. But, but what he says, she says, you know, uh, that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, she recently talked to him and he said that, uh, that Silicon Valley basically now owns Hollywood. Mm. And he makes the good point. He says, I don't think anybody could ever own Hollywood. Uh, they may be coming in with a lot of money and scale as a factor. And that's one of the areas where I disagree with him is that he seems to think that the companies that will survive need huge scale. Like that's why Murdoch got out and gave 20th over to Disney because he couldn't see them growing enough. They had a conversation and Murdoch was concerned. That growing thing again. Yeah. That growing thing. You know, you got to be big. You got to be scale. I don't agree with that. No. And the reason, and the reason I don't agree with that is this, and this always happens. It happened in the early days of Hollywood. It oh, when, the, when, 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 when the Japanese came in, uh, in, in the, in oh, the, even further back, I'm talking about when Warner brothers bought first national I'm Oh yeah, about all the way up to when Disney bought Miramax uh, golf, when golf, when with the golf, golf Western, Western. Uh, golf Western Paramount. Uh, Paramount. Yeah. Yeah. And it started putting look, that, yeah, little companies can make an impact. They can little companies can make concentrated impacts today. For example, we are going to be talking about what what t- what is always the elite stuff that we cover every week. It's Criterion. Yeah, it's Criterion, a privately held small company that that doesn't actually make their own content, but they have a brand that is highly respected and they have a place in the marketplace. And scale ain't never going to erase Criterion. It just well, I can t- I can tell you this, and, and you and I lived through this. We lived through the rise and fall of Miramax, and I'm not talking about yep. uh, you know you know, you know Harvey's uh, Bob's uh, uh, shenanigans. I'm talking about yeah. that company when it was Miramax, right? Just those yep. two brothers making these fantastic freaking films. Just you know, you know and then boom, Disney. Uh, and, and, and the shenan- and just again, not the shenanigans, just that period after Disney bought it, it became an irrelevant entity. Yep, it wasn't it, right. because it wasn't, uh, a Miramax anymore. It just had the name. Um, yep. and, and they did in, in the movies that came out of it during that period were not quote unquote Miramax movies anymore. And this uh, brings but, us, and this yeah. brings us full circle and this brings us full circle. And then we'll, we'll get into the, the titles, but this brings us full circle. Uh, it, uh, there is Silicon Valley operates on a principle of scalability. The idea that everybody always needs a new version of the old software, the computers are getting faster and faster, more people are buying computers. There is no ceiling. You just keep, uh, you just assume that you're going to sell more and more to more and more people. Mm. That's so you, you just make a ton of stuff and you just blow it out hard. Um, 
Hollywood has never operated on that principle. Hollywood has always operated on a principle of scarcity, which is that things are precious because they are rare. There are only 52 weekends in a year. There are only uh, a certain number of theaters with a certain number of seats that can only open a certain number of films on those 52 limited weekends. And people only have a certain amount of time to allocate to seeing those very special movies that are Mm. the special movies that open only in a few theaters, only on a few weekends per year. All of that means that these things are ordained as special. So when a Spider-Man movie opens or look, there's a reason why Paramount has held back Maverick, the Top Gun sequel for two years, because they know that it's special. They know that when it opens, it needs to open in a lot of theaters. So they're waiting. They're biding their time. These things are special because they are scarce, not scalable. And audiences recognize that. Netflix operates on a principle of scalability. We're going to make as much stuff as we can, and we're going to load up the platform so that it's just filled. Well, now that's great. There's a ton of stuff there, but it's not special anymore. It just isn't. It's, it's just, it's just, it's too much. And I know a lot of people at that point, you start looking for what is scarce, what is unique, what is special. And the stuff on Netflix that is scarce is the stuff that, that has built a reputation over time because it is scarce in terms of quality, Mm. stranger things, Ozark, um, the Queen's Gambit, you know, um, these are the things that people kind of zero in on. It's a handful lost in space, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so these are, these are the things that people are, are setting apart and saying, okay, this is special. But once those shows run their course, then mm-hmm. what? Well, there's an interesting thing that, that happens, um, with, uh, streaming that is the opposite of what happened with movies too, right? So that's, that, that specialness and that scarcity that you talk about that came from the old school movie industry, uh, was there because the industry itself had the power to decide, uh, yeah. this is going to be special. This is going to be scarce. Uh, these are the ones. And, and then we, and, and they, and they decided and handed it to the audience. With streaming, it's the exact opposite way around. Yeah. It's the audience that decides. The audience decides that the Queen's Gambit is the best thing they've ever seen or Squid yeah. Game or whatever. The audience decides. And, and then the audience tells each other. Uh, uh, and, and then that thing becomes Bird Box. But you can put Bird Box on if you want, and the audience doesn't like it, doesn't come, doesn't stream it, doesn't go. And, and, and it's not going to be a hit. Uh, it, it won't, uh, because the audience gets to decide with streaming what the hits are. Yep. Um, yep. uh, and, and then they, and then, then they literally tell each other. So last night, uh, Cy, uh, goddaughter Cy's in there when you're watching the series, some series called The Girl in the Window Across the Street. Looking through the window in the way, whatever it is. <laughs> it's some, some dumb long title. People it, out it's, there it's, know Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and everybody's talking about it, right? And, and I'm like, okay, you know, let's cue this thing up and, and we watch it, and, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm, and, and I'm like, really? This is the thing that everybody's going all goofy over. And I got through one, I got through two. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to make myself a vodka soda <laughs> because, because this, this is not, I don't, I don't, I, you know, and you, the, the people have decided that that's a hit show. I don't like it. Yeah. And I, I ain't watching the rest of it. I'm not I going agree. to. No, I don't, I I don't care what the people say. Um, um, so, you know, it, it'll be interesting. It's interesting that that has been reversed 
And it's interesting. Bird Box, I thought, was one of the dumbest fucking movies I ever saw. <laughs> you know, and, and, but it was this gigantic thing that people picked. Well, you know, and, 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 but, you know, also, I think uh, during the pandemic, uh, people's standards have, have gotten a little lower and their standards will go up again when really good stuff starts going up. I mean, you know how this is in Lafka. We're sitting there and we're voting on the best pictures of the year. Well, we're, we're, we're choosing from stuff that would probably not make our top 10. In, a, in, a, in any other year, but it's what we've got to work with. So we're going to work with it. Yeah. And, yeah. and the one thing that Netflix and I'll, I'll end here, the one thing Netflix lacks is, is what they take pride in lacking. And I think it's a mistake, which is they're not a studio in the traditional sense. That they develop material. They, they just have a lot of doors and a lot of people come through those doors and they just want to generate a lot of material. And that's why nearly every movie on Netflix, I mean, you know what this is like on Film Week, right? Hmm. We'll get a Netflix film and you're like, oh, crap, I swear. I, you read the description. You, it's like it's like a regular action film or, or, or an, a drama or a comedy. But you know, you know, you know, it's 135 minutes long. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, like uh, it, it's like some teen romance, you know, like uh, Julie and her friends go to London and have a great time. And if, if Paramount had made that in the 1980s, that would be a 95 minute movie head yeah. to tail in and out because we got to put them in theaters and we want we got to get, get four screenings in a day. On Netflix, oh, they don't have to worry about that. So they, no. so the director gets to basically put the, the 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 rough cut up there. The director, their assembly cut, and it winds up 135 minutes of just horrendous crap. <laughs> and you just want to cut 35 minutes out of it. Yeah, yeah, but you know, the longer they keep you there streaming, the longer they keep you there streaming, ah, and, and, which is what they're actually measuring in the in, in, in the first is. place. And again, like as you said, Netflix is not a studio. Netflix is is it's it's not a movie studio. It's not about curation. It's well, about it's about uh, generation. Of- this is this is why I still say that at the end of the day, Netflix is going to be absorbed by someone else. They have too much debt. They simply have too much debt. Mm. And the only way they're not going to be uh, assuming more debt to buy somebody else. That's not how these things work. The company with the debt like AT&T, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, mm-hmm. is the company that runs to someone else and says, help us with our debt situation. Please bring us into the fold. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's how AT&T and Warner got sucked into that discovery deal, which I think is going to be good. I, I'll eat my words if, I, if I'm wrong, but um, I think that's going to be a good thing. So I think <sighs> Netflix will be absorbed by Sony at some point. That's my prediction. And I think Sony is looking at that, and I think they're licking their chops. And I believe Netflix will effectively then become Sony's streaming operation. Interesting. I can remember when yeah. Sony was a technology company. Yeah. <laughs> they, then, sold, they sold and, things. And and they still do. A lot of them. Yeah, uh, yeah they and, do. And, and, and I think, and then I also think that uh, at some point Universal and Paramount are going to merge. I think that's uh, that's inevitable. And I think that's actually a really good fit, to be honest. Because whenever you go to Universal Studios, the one thing that you realize is you guys are picking some pretty crappy movies for your rides and your themes. Yeah, well, you yeah. know what? The, uh, the secret life of pets yeah. is not, is not an excuse for a theme park attraction. Hey, dude, they, just, not. They, just, they just took down the water world uh, thing <laughs> oh, man. two or three or four years ago, uh, oh. which was nuts. That, that movie, that movie was a flop. Uh, and, but they had already oh, spent the money to build a thing. <laughs> so they, and well, they left the, it there for 25 years. But I will say this, the Jurassic, their Jurassic park ride is terrific. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. That's terrific. It well, is that's terrific. Right. Now, I know we got to do the show. Uh, the, 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 um, 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 there, there, there might be some, um, um, uh, issues with the government with respect to all of those mergers that we just talked about. 
uh, you know, cause, cause it's literally, it would literally be reversing what they, what they broke up almost a hundred years ago now. Very true. You know, true. and, and, uh, so, you know, uh, yeah. And, and, and any, you know, and I'm the first person to say that, that, uh, you know, I don't like these mergers. I like 20th as a separate studio. I like all of these things as separate studios, but we've seen this before. MGM UA, uh, you know, uh, uh, RKO ceased to exist and got folded in with, with their library folded in with Warner. Most of the old MGM movies are now in the Warner library. Mm. Uh, I mean, these things have happened before. So, uh, you know, first national and, 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 and again, 20th century pictures, which exists again because mm-hmm. they don't want the Fox name on it. Well, it was originally separate from Fox. It was, you know, Zanuck, yeah. Zanuck created 20th century pictures. Uh, and then, and then that went folded into William Fox's Fox film company mm-hmm. and it became 20th century it's Fox. Like so these, there. you know, so these, the, again, this is, this is fluid. This is the history of Hollywood. It happens over and over, but what we really need are new companies. We need that next Miramax. We need that, that new, that new company. That's what we need. Oh, we dude, need those yeah. soon. IRS Media. When I, they, yeah. They, that man, they, they one false great all logo. Is, is out, yeah. You know, all gone, dude. All gone. Hey. All right. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to hit off some keynotes. We got some great keynote titles here that we, we haven't been able to get to in, in, uh, in a few weeks because, you know, we, it's still a pandemic. We're still, uh, still battling all of the limitations associated with that. But, uh, got some really, really cool movies, some really cool classics. Um, I've, I've tried to theme these up to the best that we can. A couple of old Charles Bronson movies that they have released, uh, Breakheart Pass and Chato's Land. You know, um, re- both of these are terrific. I don't love think I lo- Chato's Land. Yeah. I di- see, all right, I didn't love these growing up, but I kind of love them now. And a lot of it is nostalgia, but a lot of it is that I think I understand them better now. Uh, you know, both Westerns. Uh, the uh, uh, Breakheart Pass is kind of like a like a Western noir, a Western mystery uh, of sorts based on Alistair McLean novel. But um, it's got some. Um, I mean, look, Bronson is great. He's he's that that granite faced guy that we love in all these movies. This was made in 1975, kind of closer to the end of his legit career. But some wonderful perfor- supporting performances. His wife, Jill Ireland, of course, shows up and mm-hmm. you always look at her and you just think, boy, you're in a I mean, like, a, you know. Jill Ireland married Charles Bronson and yeah. married her. It's just a beautiful couple. Yeah. Charles Durning is great in this thing. Uh, Richard Crenna is absolutely wonderful. Ben Johnson, you know, good old uh, uh, standby in a lot of Western. So that's a fun movie. Comes with a, a Berger, Mitchell, and Thompson audio commentary. We've had them uh, before. And uh, just Berger and Mitchell do the commentary on Chato's Land. Now, Tim, talk about Chato's Land for a sec. Um, uh, so Chato's land, first of all, you know, hey, Charles is playing, uh, yeah, you know, a, a, a Native American can't do that anymore. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, but I just, I, I cop to it. I, 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 I get it. That's what he's doing. But dude, Jack Palance, James Whitmore, uh, in, in this movie, it's just this wicked, wicked movie. Uh, it's full of all of these people, these faces that you know, Richard Jordan, Ralph Waite, and just, just, you know, Simon, okay, just, just all these faces from that era. Uh, this is, this is right before the Velocity papers, maybe 71. 72, yeah. 70, something, something like that. Uh, and it's just this wicked, wicked uh, uh, Western with Charles Bronson sort of like dipped in, you know, and all tanned up or whatever they did to get him that, that yeah. color <laughs> that he is. And, you know, playing this, and, he, and, and he's just a stone-faced guy with this with this headband. I think I walked around with one of those headbands on yeah. <laughs> for like a summer. It's just a hell of a movie, man. It so, is. You know, and, 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 and Palance is leading a, a posse of old Confederate soldiers, you know, so you're, yeah. you're inclined to... to to want to really see him get theirs. And it's, uh, it's pretty great. Ralph Waite is, is in this as well. 
uh, the uh, the dad from the Waltons, and uh, and Victor French even shows up, which is kind of a weird thing. He was a big deal if everybody remembers on Family. Yes. Yeah, this, this space is fantastic. It's fantastic. It's, and there's also an interview with the screenwriter Gerald Wilson on here, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, good old Michael Winner movie. Yeah. Um, and then we've also got um, Vera Cruz with Gary Cooper uh, and Burt Lancaster. This is a 1954 western. Uh, Gary Cooper, kind of closer to his high noon uh, moment here. He's 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 an older Gary Cooper, right? He's a little mm-hmm. more tired, Gary Cooper. But uh, this is this is actually a lot of fun. It's uh, directed by Robert Aldrich, who did a lot of tons of great noir and a few really, really good westerns. One of the great old standbys, Dirty Dozen, maybe the most famous film that he ever made. And uh, it's 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 just a rock solid Western takes place during the uh, 1866 uh, revolution in Mexico. Got a great uh, historical backdrop. And I can't Bert- think of any other movie that Gary and Burt Land Gary Cooper. I think this may be the only, one. the only one, right? This yeah, would have been, like, this this been like the uh, Pacino, uh, yeah. you know, like Heat, you know, Pacino, you know, the only one. Yeah, interesting. And, and, and an Alex Cox commentary. And as much as I love all these Alex Cox commentaries, I keep asking myself, Dude, why don't you direct again, Repo yeah. Man? Make a Repo Man sequel, something, anything. You know, Alex Cox was booted from the Writers Guild. Did you know that? I did like, not like, know like, that. Like 30 years ago because he scabbed during the strike. Oh. But that's such a punk Repo Man thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're exactly what it is. So, well, that, that, so during that strike, yeah. he, he went out and, and did something. Yeah, he and, just he yeah. kept working. He been, huh? I don't know that he scabbed, but he just kept working. He, oh. he, he, you know, he was a WGA member, and he's like, "Oh crap! I'm not going to take the hit just because you guys are on strike. I'm not on strike." <laughs> so he kept he kept working, and they they were very vindictive because he's a name. You know, a lot of people don't get booted, but he's a name, yeah, and you're yeah. expected to toe the line if you're that status. But no, anyway. interesting. I did not know that. That's interesting. He he may have quietly rejoined. I don't know, but I'd like for him to make a movie again. Yeah, make a movie. Uh, and then we also have Home Bodies, which is is this r- t- movie that completely slipped me by. I was probably too young at the time. 1974. Uh, a a uh, boy. It, this is like a. This is one of those. It, you almost want to say it like started as a social commentary movie mm-hmm. and then just kind of lost its way somewhere uh, around the uh, development process. But it's it's this very, very strange kind of horror comedy uh, about old people in an old tenement that's condemned. And the only way that they can manage to stay in the tenement is by basically starting to kill people. <laughs> uh, there you go. That that's it. It's like you know, and there's and you and I could see how this was probably originally like an anti Robert Moses movie with a social, <laughs> right? You know, you can yeah. see that development meeting, right? And then somebody says, you know, what if, what if they start murdering people? And now it's a horror comedy, and it just goes off the rails. But it is it is kind of a strange little uh, genre thing from 1974. Feels a little Rosemary's Baby ish at times. Mm-hmm. But I, I actually like it. Larry Yust directed it. Uh, he does an audio commentary, and so to, there's an interview with the producer, and uh, it's called Homebodies, and it's a it's a funky little movie. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of uh, Rock Hudson pictures here. Come September with Gina Lola Bridget as Sandra oh, yeah. D and uh, Bobby Darren, and then uh, Rock Hudson and Kirk Douglas in The Last Sunset, another western. Oh, yeah. So so the uh, the the Last Sunset is. Uh, you know, it's kind of a standard star vehicle. It's 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 nothing particularly great. Uh, really good Ernest Gold uh, score. Also directed by Robert Aldrich again. 
Um, uh, kind of a lower tier a little bit. This was made in 1961. Mm. It's a little schmaltzy and melodramatic and whatnot. Uh, Kirk Douglas really, really overacts like crazy, but I can't think of another actor whom we love to see overact like Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Because when he gets angry and he starts spitting, <laughs> he just gets into that Kirk Douglas mode. You're a degenerate old man. Uh, so, so I mean, simple thing. A lot of great, a lot, a lot of great, a lot of great faces. Kurt and Rock. I don't think they did any other movies together either. Uh, but you know, no, Carol, Carol Lindley and Joe Cotton and just Jack Elam. Dalton, yeah. Dalton Trumbo. Dalton Trumbo wrote the screenplay. Kind of phones it in a little bit. I think you know yeah. it's not not top tier. But Dorothy Malone, Joseph Cotton, yeah. uh, Neville Brand. It's a you know it's a good it's a good cast. The Last Sunset and uh, it's got a film critic Nick Pinkerton commentary on it. Uh, the other one, Come September, I absolutely adore. Yeah. Absolutely adore Come September. This is just such a delightful movie. Um, it's uh, not just because I adore Gina Lola Brigida and because I think that Sandra Dee and Bobby Darren, who are married at the time, are just absolutely adorable. But uh, the the it, it just has that, you know, Rock Hudson had that twinkle in his eye, right? Yeah. That, that And this is the moment when he in his career when he's doing this stuff. This is 1961. And Gina Little Bridget is beautiful. Robert Mulligan, who of course did The Miracle Worker and, and a lot of other great movies, um, directs. And it's just colorful and beautiful and sweet. Mm. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's two different couples, right? There's the older couple and the younger couple and they, uh, they're, they're sharing an Italian villa and, you know, it gets a, it gets a little bit three's company like at points and there's, you know, uh, a little bit of farce going on, but I'll tell you, it's just it's a it's a really really fun movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's fluffy, but it's wonderful. Oh, uh, the, the ridiculously young Joel Gray is in that. Oh, movie. yes, ridiculously just, young Joel, as, as young as I've ever seen him. Yeah. Speaking speaking of, you know, you know what I threw on last night? I just uh, I I lit. It's hilarious. I literally got scolded for this this morning because <laughs> no, this is this is how it is, right? So so I'm going to give you a little peek behind the curtain. So I'm sitting there. I'm trying to do work. Like I really try to work so hard every night because as soon as as soon as the girls are in bed. I, I try to get some quiet time and, you know, do some writing and do some watching. And that's where I do a lot of my film week watching and a yeah, lot of watching yeah. for this podcast. And, but sometimes I get so freaking tired. I just fall asleep. I just fall asleep on the couch and wake up at like two 30 or three in the morning. And I'm like, yeah. Oh crap. I didn't get anything done. So, so uh, I, I have the TV on. I was watching cabaret speaking of Joel Gray. I'm mm. like, I have not <laughs> seen cabaret in, in just so long. I'm going to put cabaret on because cabaret is on HBO max. So why the hell not? So I put it on and there was a point when I was getting really, really tired. It was a shot of Liza looking very Liza-y. And I was like, I'm just gonna I do this to myself. I'm so stupid. At a certain point, I was like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna close my eyes for just like five minutes, just like five minutes. Now, and then I'll, I'll pause the movie. I'll close my eyes for five minutes and then I'll get back to it. Naturally, I just fell asleep for hours, never got back to it, turned the TV off or the TV went off, went to bed. This morning, <laughs> my wife comes out. Turns the TV on. What is frozen on the TV right where I had paused it the night before? Because that's how Apple TV works. Yeah. There's Liza. And she looks at me and she looks at me and she says, and she goes, really? <laughs> and that's and there it was. There it was. That's my life. That's my life. So. A couple of war movies here. Um, to Helen Back, the Audie Ooh. Murphy story. Yeah. Uh, starring, believe mm -hmm. it or not, yeah. Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy. Yeah. Uh, so before Clint Eastwood decided to take those three Marines who stopped the terrorist attack on the train to cast them as themselves, 
Uh, Audie Murphy was cast as himself in his own story to Helen Back. Now, Audie Murphy won the Medal of Honor, World War II hero, the whole thing. Short mm-hmm. little guy. Really an amazing story. He's not bad at playing himself. Nah, he, he gets away with it. He, he, gets- <laughs> he, 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 he played. He played. He played a couple of cowboys, you know, yeah. and 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 some other. You know, he, he had a little had a little acting career there for a second. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and he, he but sure the only did. one he ever really got right was himself. Yeah, <laughs> the, the rest true. of it that's, was just not. True. No. But the funny thing about the three guys in the Clint Eastwood film, Tyler, which I always forget, is that they are all over the map. Oh yeah, like yeah. I mean, like 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 one of them is really really bad at playing himself. One of one of the white guys, he's really really. I mean, he's terrible. And you're like, dude, this is you, and you suck at being you. You're terrible. And then and then and then the black guy, he's he's really good at himself, but he's like a TV show host now. Like he's yeah. he's really good with media. He nails it. He's the only one that's like, now I believe that what happened what you're i believe this really happened and then the other guy's kind of between them he's sort yeah. of you know he's kind of trying to get it but the one guy who's bad at himself how do you let that happen I, yeah I, you, it's nerves it's just nerves uh yeah. yeah you but you know clint i put that on clint though because yeah. you know clint, clint, clint hey, look kid relax it's you it's just you Nuts. but whatever whatever that's, that's okay well uh, anyway, Audie Murphy to Helen back, 1955, uh, 10 years or so after the events that uh, it depicts. And he still looks young. He's good on it. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know what? He got an audio commentary here by a filmmaker and historian, Steve Mitchell, which is pretty good. And, um, you know, that's it's fine. Um, Jet Pilot with uh, John Wayne. Uh, Howard Hughes, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's what do you what do you want? This is one of those Howard Hughes produced things from the late fifties. Uh, it's very muscular and macho, and uh, it's you know, it, it's a it's you know it's a Cold War action thing. It's not. It's I don't know if it feels. Does does this work for you still? Something like Jet Pilot, or does yeah, it feel just dated? It feels no, dated to me. Yeah, von Sternberg. Yeah, no, it's a little dated, but I, I, I think I like that title at the time. You know, when I see that, I saw this on right. television, of course, in the 70s. And at the time, that title was all for me, just, you know, Jet Pilot, you know. Right. You couldn't even use that title, title today, even if the film were still set in 1957. The, the, nobody says that anymore. And the film no. feels like that, too. Nobody nobody does this anymore. Nobody behaves this way anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, Janet Lee sort of. So, anyway, yeah, yeah. John Wayne was way too old to be a jet pilot anyway. By 1957, jet pilots are like jet pilots are like 25, 22. Well, I I will say this: the Russians were the bad guys back then. Yeah, they're the bad, they're the bad guys, guys again. <laughs> Come full circle. I was the guy, when, I, when I joined the Air Force. The, 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 the he's in the Air Force. That's the Air Force yeah. that they're yeah. in. When I joined the Air Force in 1979, of the Russians were the bad guys. Yeah. Um, uh, you know the the you know the wall and all that kind of stuff. By the time I got out of the Air Force in 1985, everything was sort of coming apart. Uh, so and uh, and and we had to find a new enemy. And I, for a while there, um, it was for a while, for a while it was Colombian drug dealers actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, like in the James Bond movies, I know I hated that. Well, yeah, that, that was the worst. Which one was yeah. Tim Dalton? It was a Timothy Dalton one. Yeah, it was uh, Robert. Uh, what's his name? Played the played the you know, park faced Colombian drug. Yeah, Davi, made, Robert Davi. Robert Robert Davi. It was absolutely horrible. Yeah, yeah. They, they, do, you remember, were, do you remember? Do you remember when Robert Davi like uh, did 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 some lounge singing at one of our Alaska dinners? Do you remember? Yeah, that? yeah. He, he, he that was weird. Everybody got the DVD. I got it. It's right over there. So it weird. Very weird. Nice voice, but you know, beautiful voice. But I, I, <laughs> what I thought too, like he's, it's like Robert Davi just turned into Sinatra and he's walking around serenading everybody. And I hope he doesn't come to my table because I'll look really 
embarrassed. <laughs> uh, it was a very strange moment. Anyway, um, The Green Man is this really, really cool British indie from 1957, uh, directed by Robert Day, uh, you know, starring Alistair Sim, uh, the same Alistair Sim that we know from uh, Christmas Carol. But he's he's playing... What he's buying is kind of like the the uh, uh, the bad version of Steed from the uh, the Avengers. <laughs> he looks like Steed. He's got the same outfit and you know the, the hat and the suit and the whole thing. But he's an assassin by night, but by day he's a watchmaker, clockmaker guy. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's it's a it's it's a weird little quirky British uh, movie from the time. It's it's technically a comedy, but it's got some really dark edges to it. Mm-hmm. And Terry Thomas is the one thing that consistently reminds you that it's a comedy because Terry Thomas isn't capable of doing anything serious. Never has been. Oh. The, you know, the diastema and the, the voice. Is, yeah. So, but anyway, that's a fun little film. Uh, the Green Man. And then uh, we got a super 3D quadraphonic sound thing from the 3D film archive, a restoration of Dynasty. No, not the regular TV show. This is a a martial arts film from 1977 that was, um, it's it's actually kind of a weird uh, anomaly in the history of martial arts films, too. And it's a little strange that's coming out from, from Kino because this would normally be something whose rights reverted to to uh, a Hong Kong company, yeah. but it, it, I, so I'm not quite sure how this wound up happening. Nonetheless, it's clearly came to the 3D film archive. Gotta say, it it doesn't quite work the 3D part of it with the martial arts. It feels very dated and weird. But it's a really it's kind of a, a crazy you know it's a period wuxia film. Mm. Uh, I won't get into the plot because it'll make no sense to you. It's a whole Tang Dynasty, blah 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 blah. But. Um, you know, it's it, it it it's a it is an interesting artifact of the period, and uh, it's got some great extras on it. There's a uh, restored 3D comic book called The House of Terror. There are uh, stereo slide presentations from uh, Eric Drysdale that kind of give you an impression of how the technology worked. And then uh, these these cool little other you know 3D featurettes. So one's a music video, uh, one's a kind of a lens system featurette. It's it's really it, it's it's a nice overall introduction, not just to a 3D movie of the period, but to the the kitsch that surrounded the technology at the time. So really like that. Also got a couple of Tallulah Bankhead movies. If oh. you don't know Tallulah Bankhead, Tallulah was the best. She was like this just uh, you know it, it's it's funny that it, it, there. You can look at Betty Davis, you can look at Joan Crawford, all the kind of early feminist icons who were tough ladies, uh, Barbara Stanwyck. You know, we had a ton of them in movies at the time. They were tough. They dish it back to the men. You could never get them on edge. Some of them were murderers. So, you know, they always, they, like, there were some incredibly strong ladies. But man, Tallulah Bankhead was just uh, in a league all of her own. Part of it was the voice. Part of it was the attitude. And part of it was that these are pre-code movies and Tallulah could do any old damn thing she wanted to. And uh, these two films, I think, are both really cool. One is called Devil and the Deep, which is is a is a double entendre that I don't know. I don't think you could ever come close to getting away with that even today. Mm. Uh, Tallulah Bankhead and a very young Gary Cooper, as well as Charles Lawton and Cary Grant. Come on. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> get out of here, baby. Get out of here. And then, uh, and then there's also the cheat. Um, so both of these, you know, the, the sexual politics in these things are, are really, really fascinating. Um, the, uh, uh, I, I would say the cheat is probably the more scandalous of them made in 1931 when you mm-hmm. can pretty much do absolutely anything. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a whole, it's like a, 
a whole it, it's it's an upper society mid society um well, how would i put this uh it's it, it, relationships let's just let's just say it's it's about the complications of relationships and when you introduce gambling and all this other stuff so yeah. um it it really has a lot of interesting pre-code stuff to it uh and then devil in the deep is you know just a just a wonderful um kind of military uh story with um with with the melodramatic overtones to it and uh you know, uh, Tallulah is the woman in the middle of all these guys playing out all their testosterone issues. Uh, Charles Lawton is, is freaking creepy and Cary Grant and Gary Cooper look gorgeous. And and I would almost say Cary Grant is taking notes from Gary Cooper in this movie. Oh, really? You can yeah. See, yeah, you can see stuff where Cary's like, I think that guy really knows what's going on. And Gary Cooper is saying things like, Yes, you might want to sort of imitate my voice with a British accent. <laughs> and that's another interesting. I don't think Gary and, uh, and, and Carrie did another film together. Well, uh, because it's, it's the screenplay thing, right? Yeah. Someone must have said we can't have Gary and Carrie in a movie together because audiences will be confused. Yeah, One he, of you has he, to change your name. Is it interesting? Because Gary, he was just right there in the middle uh, yeah. where, where he was, you know, older, you know, fairly young in this. Uh, older in that other one that we uh, with uh, Burt Lancaster. Uh, from yep. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yep. Uh, William Dieterle's The Accused from 1948, uh, starring Loretta Young and Robert Cummings, is uh, is a little uh, salacious. Um, it, it's a it's a it, it's a it's a noir. It involves a murder that is kind of sexually uh, sexually themed. And uh, winds up going in some very unexpected directions. Uh, Loretta Young is great. Uh, Robert Cummings is great. I'm not usually a Robert Cummings fan. I think he's a little bit uh, soft. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's usually the guy, like the other guy, right? You, you, you couldn't get you couldn't get Carrie or Gary. Uh, you went with Robert Cummings. Yeah. That was kind of one of those deals. But actually, it's it's really really well put together. William Dieterle, uh, rock solid. Hal Wallace produced this thing for Paramount in 1949. Uh, it was released in 49, I think made in 48. Anyway, uh, audio commentary by, uh, Eddie Von Mueller, film historian. Uh, we've also got Deported, which doesn't quite mean the same thing, uh, in 1950 that it does now, but, uh, it, it kind of did. And, uh, this is, uh, this stars, uh, Marta Torrin and Jeff Chandler, kind of second tier stars. Yeah. Directed by Robert Siodmak, 1950. Film historian, uh, Eddie Mueller also does the commentary here. Um, it's uh you know this is this is kind of a a a bit of a throwaway from the time but it, you know it, it's still it's okay it's it's basically about um a guy who was deported to Italy and then you know he winds up having to make a go of it in Italy doesn't you know the the title has less to do with the plot than you would think but um you know it's a it's got some got its moments. I always like Jeff Chandler flicks. He you know, a lot of noir pops up in a lot of noir. But he's, he, he's one of those guys that never really hit it big, no, right? No. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just he he was always there, but the it, it just, he just never really blew up the way he the way you would have expected a guy that looked like that too. Yeah, uh, kind of also on that same level is 1941's Among the Living, which is a which is you know pretty solid B movie that has a few uh, A people in it. Francis Farmer. Uh, is in this Susan Hayward before she kind of blew up big Harry Carey. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a good solid little, um, little kind of B thriller, uh, that has a twin plot to it. And I won't tell you kind of how the, the twin thing works, but it's, you know, it's madness and twins and, and it's a noir. Uh, the mystery of Edwin Drood. You ever see this, Tim? No. The mystery of Edwin Drood. It's a Claude Rains movie. 
1935, really early Claude Rains movie, and uh, it's it's uh, it's based on the um, the unfinished novel of Charles Dickens. Hmm. He never he never finished it. So it's uh, but they apparently had had enough to finish it for the movie. And you can kind of tell that it's unfinished because the movie it sort of wraps itself up pretty hastily. But it's really good Dickensian um, Victorian level noir, and it's uh, it, it's it's a really good, a really really good performance by um, Claude Rains. Mm. Uh, probably one of one of the best early ones that I've seen. So anyway, that's uh, that, that's interesting. Audio commentary by David Del Valle as well. It was a mini series. 10, 15 years ago, British miniseries. Which, which I also never saw, which yeah. I also never saw. And I probably probably should have tried to track it down for this, but, you know, I'm, I don't have time for miniseries. Yeah, yeah, too many. Uh, it's just too much stuff. The uh, The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. Now, this is, um, The Spider-Woman Strikes Back was the sequel to Spider-Wars. And at the end of Spider Wars, the spider web blows up. It was called the Death Spider Web. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they decided to make the Spider Woman Strikes Back, in which Han Spider gets froze. Oh, forget it. <laughs> uh, dumbest joke ever. Oh, so, no, it's a. Yeah. This is just. This is just uh, really, really silly. And and uh, the title should tell you exactly how silly it is. It's kind of fun to watch because it's campy. Yeah. And it's got a lot of extras on it. Uh, there's a documentary short and and uh, thing on makeup effects. And uh, but otherwise, it's it's you know it, it it don't don't confuse it with any other movie that has the same title. I think I think there's a Sherlock Holmes movie that has the same title. Mm. I believe, but it's not the it's not the story. Uh, Sigmund Freud biopic with Montgomery Clift and Susanna York called Freud, produced by John Huston. And uh, directed by John Huston and written by uh, Charles Kaufman, not to be confused with Charlie Kaufman. Mm. And it is um, uh, it it doesn't really have much to do with Sigmund Freud, really. It's just kind of a Montgomery Cliff vehicle. Uh, but, you know, um, Montgomery Cliff movie is better than not. So I guess, you know. Mm. Okay, but uh, you know whatever happened to Susanna York? By the way, when did yeah. she, she did she she didn't? I mean, when did she die? Do we remember? Good, a good question. Susanna York uh, about about twenty eleven. Uh, was it yeah. because she kind of disappeared after the sixties? I don't remember her doing much of anything in the seventies. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of TV stuff, but uh, but uh, yeah, I definitely left the movies. But she was kind of like a, a fixture on British television there for anyway. A it, yeah. This this really turned Sigmund Freud's life into an episode of Dallas or Dynasty. It's, yeah, it's it's very melodramatic and kind of silly. So I wouldn't uh, you know make it a high priority. But if you want to see Montgomery Clift in, in a biopic about Sigmund Freud, go for it. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so this is one that I I had. Uh, uh, forgotten existed, and this is quite a lot of fun. It's called Torch Singer, starring Claudette Colbert, and it's actually quite good. It's got uh, it, it, it's got a really really fun cast. It is about a it's kind of a pre code movie. It, it, it was made right around that time when when things went from pre code to code. But it's uh, it's basically about a woman. She's an unwed mother, and uh, it's about her struggles with you know being an unwed mother and what she has to do to make ends meet. Becomes a singer, and um, how she, you know, is able to sort of work her way through all of these struggles. And, you know, the subject of being an unwed single mother in the 1930s, 
you could do it until about 1933. Yeah. No way in hell that you could tell that story no. after 1933. No, no. So, um, but what the thing is, it's not done in a salacious way. Claudette no. Colbert was a rock solid, legit actress, and uh, it's it's a it's quite a good film. Cat uh, Ellinger does the audio commentary. It's it's a very very good, it, it talks about all these issues. So it's a cat really kind of kills it on that one. And then the last three here. I'll just cut through real quickly. We've got Cary Grant again, along with Nancy Carroll and Randolph Scott in Hot Saturday. And um, <laughs> this also is a pre-code film, as you would imagine, mm-hmm. because uh, it, th- those were the titles that they 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 could get away with at the time. Um, it's pretty good, actually. It's actually a pretty decent film. Uh, Nancy Carroll plays a... Uh, um, how do we put this? She... <laughs> Cary, Cary Grant ruins her. He wrecks her. Mm. He turns her into a crazy girl. He, uh, she, she meets him, and she goes from being a good girl to a bad girl. It was just that hot Saturday that just flipped her. <clears throat> it just turned her into a crazy woman. So the moral to this is, don't let your daughters date Cary Grant. <laughs> That's Cary, not Gary. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, no, it's, uh, it's actually, it's actually fun. It's a little silly. And, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's almost like one of those hygiene films from the period. Um, the, uh, the secret of the blue room with Lionel Atwell, Paul Lucas and Gloria Stewart is, uh, is, is also pretty fun. Um, this is kind of a um, sophisticated noir, I guess, from 1933. Also feel Michael, Michael Schlesinger, our very good friend, Michael Schlesinger, yeah. whom we've, uh, we've had as a, as a, a guest on the show does an amazing commentary. He knows this stuff inside out. This is his bailiwick. Yeah. So he, uh, he just kind of, he, he just rocks it on the, on the commentary. I would, I would recommend this just for his commentary alone, but um, no, it's, it's a good kind of sophisticated uh, drawing room noir with a great cast and uh, really, really worth checking out made by uh, universal at the time. And then the last one, before we move on to other things, uh, Edward G. Robinson in Night Has a Thousand Eyes. Mm. Um, we don't get titles like that anymore. It's too bad. No. This is 1948. We're well into the into the, the uh, code period. The only thing I will say about this, and this is kind of a supernatural noir. Um, it, it's fine. Robinson is is solid. He plays yeah. a you know he plays a magician in this thing and has all kinds of issues. But um, the the significance of this is that it was directed by a John Farrow, Mm -hmm. father of Mia. And one of the more noteworthy films of his filmography. So that's it. That's what we got from Kino this week. And uh, good on them. Um, Let's see. What else? uh, What what should we move to next? Well, I I was going to ask. It's over in the Criterion's The Celebration. Which, which, what what is that? This is, yeah. (laughs) This is our, uh, this is our dogma. This This is is our dogma. This is that one. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Sure is. Ushered in that period. This Uh, is, this is our, uh, uh, the, the, the film that basically sort of uh, began dogma outside of the Lars von Trier films. You know, Lars von Trier films are Lars. No, this is Thomas Vinterberg's dogma. This is Thomas. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or from from it, it, it sorry from from 1998, but it includes the uh, the 2005 commentary. Um, you know what's interesting about this, Tim? I'm going to show you on the camera. So you see that? Uh, hold on, sorry. They, they in in the spirit of dogma. Oh, yeah. In the spirit of dogma, they they went with a totally bare bones packaging. This is this is Criterion being super cool. Yeah, it's a clear case. It has no artwork w- at all. 
There's dogma, no armor. of course, for, for folks was a, was a film mo- movement that eschewed uh, the use of almost anything uh, normally used in the making of films. No, no lighting, no, no, no artificial, artificial lighting, artificial lighting and, and uh, very often the you know, non-actors and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And you're and not – so about what, five, ten years? I think about five years before everybody kind of got fed up. And well, it kinda, it kinda, it, it, unfortunately, it kind of it kind of drove itself down to uh, what was that movement after the, um, a mumblecore, a dog. Oh, yeah, kinda, yeah. Kinda, which I'm like, if we're, we're, we're not even going to talk in our movies. <laughs> oh, okay, fine, fine. You know, that's that's a really interesting analogy. That's a really interesting analogy to go from. Yeah, you're right. It, it, mumblecore kind of grew out of dogma in yeah. many respects. Anyway, they went really bare bones in the packaging. Um, which is fine. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's the, the, the brown bag sensibility of the whole thing. Um, tons of extras on here. There's a documentary from 2002 about the, the movement, uh, has interviews with everybody, including, you know, on Trier and Vinterberg and Christian Levering and, you know, all of the people who were sort of central to it. A lot of documentary stuff about it, but, but, but basically you want the movie because the movie is a really twisted film. Oh, it was quite controversial at the time. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It was very controversial at the time. Um, It all takes place on on a guy's birthday. This guy's 60th birthday. Uh, This very, very wealthy guy. And it's just, you you know, you, it's almost Agatha Christie. Like you bring all these people together and, and you just let them go crazy and, and be horrible. Pretty great. Mm. Uh, we got time. Garrett oh, that, Bradley's that, time. That that docu- that very dark, so that good. Docu- yeah, very, Twenty years. Uh, what, what did he, he got sentenced to sixty years. Uh, she and he, they, you know, they commit this crime in the early nineties. Yeah. Rob dropped something, and he, and he got sixty years. And she, basically, they documented the entire you know, over the course of the next you know, twenty years um, uh, her efforts to get him out of prison. And there's a lot of radio diary, uh, 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 recorded diaries, diary, and, home and, movies, home movies. And yeah, and it's a sort of beautiful black and white film. And it's very deeply moving and kind of tragic. And I really, uh, yeah, it's funny though. I really didn't know. I, I really didn't know how to feel coming away from, from that um, uh, the film. Cause it's not like they didn't do it. Not like he didn't do yeah. it. They did it. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, 60 years. Well, it, I think it's, it's, I think that's the question to it is, which is, you know, where, when you get to the subject and it is very much a subject that is part of the, 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 the cultural conversation right now of mm. mass incarceration there, you know, we are still, and I, and I think the film makes this point. We are still as, as a, a, an industrial society working with a pre-industrial, mm. um, uh, incarceration and justice mentality. We're still working, you know, it's still, we're still kind of in Les Miserables, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. still that, it's still that mindset. And we haven't really evolved to, because recidivism is a serious problem. So we're, we're at a case where it's like either we lock people up for a short period of time and they go back to a life of crime or we lock them up forever. Rehabilitation and how to make people functioning members of society again and giving them a leg up and helping, you know, Fixing the problem. Yeah. We haven't figured that out. And I think that's kind of the conversation that you're meant to have in watching this. It doesn't have a solution, but it's meant to make you think. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, that's what that was. Hard Day's Night, man. Uh, oh, Richard so Lester. Uh, so what do, we, what do we have that's new here out of Criterion? There, you know, it, this it's unbelievable. We've all seen this movie. We've seen it 150 times. This is a 4K. This is a Criterion right, 4K. So they, they just knock it out of the park. It is gorgeous. Richard Lester, just come on, man, give it up. Just what a what a great guy. I can't. I'm hoping they'll do four Ks of you know the three three Musketeers and four Musketeers. But um, yeah, this you know what do you want? The Beatles and Richard Lester on four K. It's a beautiful thing. Loaded with extras. Loaded 
absolutely loaded. Uh, the Dolby Vision HDR is to die for, absolutely to die for. Um, the DTS HD, it, it, I mean, truly, this is this is the Beatles as they were meant to be heard. Uh, it is just a wonderful, wonderful audio remix. Um, it also includes a uh, an audio commentary with the cast and crew, which many people have heard before. And uh, in their own voices is a 1964 um, uh, collection of interviews with the Beatles and some behind-the-scenes footage of it. And there's also uh, The Making of a Hard Day's Night, which was made in 1994, mm-hmm. which, is, uh, which has a performance that was not included in the movie. Uh, they also have a 2002 documentary about the film that features uh, everybody involved. Uh, there's a, uh, an Oscar nominated short that Richard Lester made in 1960 called the running, jumping and standing still. Um, there's a, another television program from 2014, all about how Richard Lester worked. I mean, it's, you know, and, and that's just a scratching the surface. There's a ton of other stuff here. So, I mean, if you have a 4k machine and you love the Beatles and you love Richard Lester, you, you would be, uh, it would be sacrilegious to not, um, absolutely jump all over that. Yeah. Uh, Kirsten Johnson's film, Dick Johnson is dead is now out on Blu-ray as a criterion. This was made a couple of years ago. I, 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 this is such an odd film and I never would have pegged this to be a criterion, but that's always kind of the, the fun thing, right? It's, Mm. it's, um, it it basically, uh, the, the director, Kirsten Johnson wanted to, uh, make a movie about her dad. Yeah. Who's not dead by the way. (laughs) who's, who's, Who's not dead, but, but he's, he's, it's the long goodbye. You know, he's, um, He's he is he's passing from dementia, and he will yeah. eventually pass from dementia. Yeah. yeah. And so this is a, this is a really really um, very brave way of wrestling with that in a very public way, and uh, it's it's a it, you know it, it's 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 funny in ways yeah. that you sometimes feel guilty about laughing at, right? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It, but it's human too, and it, I thought it was a very tender and interesting and unusual film, and uh, I, I think I think it's terrific. It's got a lot of great extras on it. Um, she, she has a, you know, conversation with, the some of the other filmmakers and there's an audio commentary that features, uh, features her and, and some of her collaborators. So it's, uh, Dick Johnson is dead by Kirsten Johnson. And then the one that I really, really want to rave about here, uh, cause I believe this is on Criterion Channel this month too. Mm. Another 4k. Oh my gosh. This is gorgeous. Freaking amazing. One of the greatest movies I've ever seen. One of the it was like the the highlight of my my first year at or my second year at the Cannes Film Festival in oh, 1993. Yeah. Yeah. Jane Campion's The Piano. Oh yeah. Um. So here was here was when I knew, everyone wanted to see this. Right. I yeah. remember I remember no. going to the Cannes Film Festival in '93. This wound up sharing the award with uh, Chen Kaiga's Farewell My Concubine, which was my other favorite film that year. Yeah. Both yeah. of them just perfect. And I remember going to the. Uh, the the uh, the press conference for Body Snatchers with Abel Ferrara, mm-hmm. which I've talked about before, where he gets into it, you know, the with the with with uh, Alexander Walker. But the first thing that Abel Ferrara said as he sat down was, uh, "Hey, did you hear? They just uh, Jim Campion just arrived, and they gave her the Palm d'Or on the tarmac." <laughs> And everyone laughed because that was the conversation before the festival. Jane Campion had won the Palme d'Or for her short film. Mm-hmm. So she's coming back after having made Sweetie and An Angel at My, my table, table. And now yeah. this is, and everybody, the buzz on this thing was, it's going to win the Palme d'Or. Like the surprise was that it had to share it with another film. Mm. That was the surprise. No one expected any other film to win it that year. There was no mystery. Jane Campion, The Piano, 
first woman to win a, a Palme d'Or. It's going to happen. Locked. And sure enough, it wound up being just exactly the poetic, beautiful, amazing movie that that everyone expected. And that how often does that happen? Oh, it's just exquisite. Interesting that you know Jane Jane is back with the uh, power of the dog. This year, uh, right yep. now, Benedict Cumberbatch, all this film streaming on something. What is it? It's streaming someplace. Uh, it's streaming. Netflix. 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 Uh, yep. And uh, so, 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 you know, um, and, and, and I enjoy The Power of the Dog, like that good, good performance uh, by Benedict. Uh, the piano is still Jane Campion's, you know. Uh, oh, it's her masterpiece. And I, and I, I'm a big fan of Sweetie and uh, Angel at My Table, too, to be honest. I even like Bright Star quite a lot. Oh, I love Bright Star, dude. I love Bright Star so much. Uh, so, you know, I, so so deeply appreciate the power of the dog. But it is interesting to me that of all of those Jane uh, Campion films, uh, you know, it, it, it it's it's like fifth on my list of, yeah. of, of all of my favorite Jane Campion films. Yeah. But that's what we're doing. Well, it is it is gorgeous. It is 4K. It just kills it in every every conceivable way. The uh, the music is just has never been more beautiful. Uh, that 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 Michael Nyman music. Which, by the way, was not nominated for score, no. if you can believe that. Michael Nyman is not popular with other composers. I just mm. want to point that out. There's a reason why this was nominated, not nominated in the one category it absolutely had to be, which is that incredible score by Michael Nyman. But, you know, other composers dislike him. Uh, but there are, there are interviews in here with everybody involved that, you know, the Maori advisor is really fascinating to hear from. Just really fascinating. Uh, you know, Power of the Dog was all shot in New Zealand, too, by the way. Yeah. You know that, right? Yeah. It's New Zealand doubling for the Dakotas. It's yeah. crazy. And uh, there's there's even the uh, water, the Water Diary, uh, Jane Campion's 2006 short film here, which in many respects kind of inspires uh, aspects of this. Also, I want to point out Stuart Dryberg. Stuart Dryberg, who shot this, mm -hmm. has become the premier cinematographer right now because Stuart Dryberg also shot uh, Dune. Oh, right, yeah, and and he may also have shot the Batman for Matt. I think. As, uh, we double check on that. But mm. yeah, anyway, Stuart Dryberg is just, he's shooting all the big stuff now. He has just become the go-to guy. And you can see why, because the piano is so sweet oh, and beautiful yeah. and it's just absolutely magnificent. Um, a few things from Arrow, real quickly, as long as we're on Criterion. Yeah, Let's yeah. see. Uh, Sailor Suit and Machine Gun. <coughs> Excuse me. Sailor Suit and Machine Gun. Uh, is a is a basically a wild and crazy cartoony yakuza movie from um, Shinji Somai, and uh, it, it, it's totally unhinged, as many of those yakuza movies are. But it's got <laughs> that it it has that weird kind of cartoony, pulpy quality to it. It is it's based on a um, a novel which I am not familiar with uh, by Yiro Akagawa. But, um, you know, it's very culty in Japan, but, you know, it's uh, it's about a girl who becomes the head of a Yakuza clan, basically. And, man, she just lives it to the hilt. Uh, yeah, I love it when boring. that happens. Yeah. yeah, don't don't let the girl run the thing because she'll <laughs> she'll be crazier than the guys. But uh, anyway, it's 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 quite cute. Um, if I can say that a lot yeah. of extras on here, including a 50 minute documentary all about the people involved and everything. Uh, it's it's pretty, pretty terrific. So uh, Sailor Suit Machine Gun. Really, uh, really bloody and violent, but, uh, you know, it's, it's fun at the same time. <laughs> and then, uh, as long as we're on the subject of Japanese movies, uh, another one here is, uh, The Snake Girl and the Silver Haired Ooh. Witch. Yeah. Which, you're going to be surprised to know this, Tim. Yeah. You know what this is about? Uh, it's about it, a snake girl uh, and a silver haired, -haired witch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. In, in the 60s, these things were all very literal. 
<laughs> since it's, yeah, I think it was like late sixties, right? I'll be like, yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's, I mean, that's exactly what it's about. It's, it, it, it's, it's a crazy Japanese horror film, kind of a ghosty horror film uh, about this girl who, you know, uh, leaves an orphanage and goes back to her estranged family. And you don't want to do that. You kind of want to send her back to the orphanage because she's better off without the family. <laughs> it's, uh, but uh, this is, this is a, you know, weird, creepy, oftentimes very, very funny uh, kind of, a kitschy Japanese exploitation horror film, and um, you know, enjoy it if you, if you can. Yeah. Um, uh, Michael Venus did Sleep. You ever yeah. see Sleep? Uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I, this uh, is this is a new one to me. I I don't know how how I missed this one. But. Isn't it a horror film? You know, the, 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 the girl in her dreams, the whole whole thing. Yeah, that kind of creepy little movie. I I, I, don't, I can't remember why I saw it, but it was yeah. Work. Yeah, it's um, tons of extras on this, but yeah, it's it's a it's a story about you know a little girl and her nightmares, and um, it uh, just slipped right past my radar. But uh, it, anyway, tons of extras on here that kind of get into the whole uh, issues of dreams and their you know mm. dream researchers, and it, it, that, you get a lot of that here. It's uh, very much about the the reality of dreams and nightmares and how that inspired the film. Um, and, uh, you know, where the inspirations come from, everybody from, you know, David Lynch to Franz Kafka, to Mario Bava and, and on and on. Um, nice limited edition of the movie sleep by Michael Venus from arrow. And then, uh, the last two, uh, speaking of Mario Bava, we're going to oh, talk yeah. about shock Mario Bava's oh, yeah. shock. I am just going to say, I hate this movie. <laughs> I, re- yeah. I do. I thoroughly hate this movie, but I know a lot of people love it. So, you know, there you go. Uh, knock yourselves out. But it's, uh, it was supposed to be kind of a sequel to the movie beyond the, um, uh, beyond the door. Oh yeah. And, uh, it, it, which Mario Bava did not make, by the way. No. It was not a Mario Bava film, but he it was made as kind of a sequel to that film, which was made by some other Italian filmmaker. And uh, it, it's just nasty. <laughs> yeah. it. It's just it's nasty. But uh, and again, it has deals with nightmares and hallucinations, and you know, it's a lot of the similar kind of stuff. But it's just it's it's nasty. I didn't like it at all. And then there's Red Angel, another Japanese horror film uh, directed by Yasuzo Masamura, who did all those cool kind of exploity films, uh, mm. Giants and Toys, and and blind beast. Um, and this is, this is just, uh, uh, one of those horrible, horrible Japanese horror films that picks <laughs> someone that picks someone you should trust yeah. like a military nurse yeah. and proceeds to destroy every single last shred of trust that you might possibly have. Um, so there it is. And the Japanese just love to do that kind of stuff. It all takes place in 1939, you know, on the, on the eve of uh, the rest of world war two, that yeah. Japan has already invaded China and you know, it, it just makes it, it yeah. makes it all worse. The it's movies from the sixties, but it takes place in the, in, in correct. The yes. Yeah, but, but those, 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 those movies in the, in the man, I don't know. I, th- I think the Japanese were actually, I, I, for lack of a better word, better <laughs> at this stuff than the, Oh, Italian. by far. You by know. far. Yeah, by far, for sure. Um, let's do uh, – what else What else should we hit up? We got 4Ks. We got TV. I, I, I was thinking of some TV there. That's yeah. what I, like, I saw – what did I see? Spine of the Night, that 4K and 4K, yeah. uh, which is, you know, you know uh, again, ultraviolet. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, and, and it was really, really uh, – I, I was. it reminded me of that sort of um, – 
heavy metal uh, sort of stuff, you know, and you got you got Lucy Lawless's voice and Peyton Oswald's voice and Richard E. Grant is and this just woman and she's just naked. It, it, this is this is animation now. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, she's just naked throughout this whole thing. And you got the pubic hair and the underarm hair, and it's and, and it's made to just be as <laughs> crunching as it possibly can be, and people's heads or limbs are cut off. It's just as vicious, it's just ultra violent movie well a lot of interesting voices in it i look i couldn't get into it uh and and our our um colleague over at film week charles solomon uh he warned me off but you know i i, I had to go in and man i just wow but some folks really love this stuff and uh but i can't deal with it can't deal with it at all well it's a, it's, a, it's 4k steelbook originally aired on shutter oh man yeah um, as long as we're speaking about that, let me let me just uh, kick over to Blue Underground's alt 4K. Uh, we're, we're talking about some nasty stuff right now. As long <laughs> yeah. as we're coming out of all this stuff, yeah. but for, uh, another 4K uh, from Shutter, uh, not from Shutter, from Blue Underground uh, of the uh, the Toolbox Murders, yeah. which is also speaking of nudity and gore. Uh, there's a lot of that in this one too. But you know, this is it, it's interesting to me they would choose this for a 4K release because. Um, it you know it's an exploitation film. It's kind of one of the original uh, gore exploitation films, yeah. and uh, I wouldn't expect anybody would want to see more detail in this. But I guess the nudity probably triggers that. Yeah. Uh, it's really really well done. I mean, it's really good. You would think, oh, it's not going to gain anything from the 4K, but they went back to the original elements and they meticulously scanned the original negative. They you know tweaked the the, the Dolby Vision HDR. Uh, they they really did a great new mix. And uh, you know what? I mean, it, it, it'll never make you want to hire another handyman. <laughs> it, um, it's basically a guy in a ski mask running around the apartment building the whole complex just and with a toolbox, you know, killing people with the various different things that you got. You can kill somebody this is, with a toolbox. That's what it is. This is this is how I describe this film. Imagine if one Sunday evening you and your family settle in. Around, I want to say about 1979. You know, you want to to watch the CBS lineup, (laughs) Jefferson's and Alice. And, you know, you're really laughing. And one day at a time comes on. One day at a time. (laughs) Pat Harrington. And, and, And imagine that Pat Harrington is Schneider, shows up at the door with that smile and proceeds to pull out his tools and murder Bonnie Franklin in the goriest possible way. And then Valerie Bertinelli and then everybody. There we go. You know, that's, uh, that's the movie. Yeah. That's the movie. Yeah. Fritz, the, Fritz, the cat. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Let me, let me get over to that. Hold on. Uh, oh, Ralph Bakshi, uh, you know, speaking again of that, cause it's, it lives in that same zone. As long as we're going with, yeah, we're, we're doing it, you know, uh, we're, we're going to go there. Uh, but yeah, we, not enough credit goes to Robert Crumb, though, because we think about Tristan, we think about Robert, yeah. but, you know, but, but uh, uh, Ralph Bakshi, but it, you know, Robert Crumb yeah. uh, created those characters, and yep. you know, so say his name a couple times. For sure. Uh, Fritz the Cat and the Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat, uh, both of them based on our Crumb characters and then turned into movies that Ralph Bakshi wrote and directed. And uh, when you combine those two animated talents, you get some pretty twisted stuff. Uh, yeah, Fritz the Cat was famous for being the first X-rated uh, animated movie, and that really broke a lot of people's brains at the time. Yeah, These are actually Scorpion releases through Kino Lorber. 
And uh, yeah, we're talking about some twisted animation today, folks. Pretty <laughs> twisted animation. Sorry about that. Ro- 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 Rosetta Lenore, uh, who's this wonderful black actress uh, who, if you, you watch television, you saw her on Family. She played the grandmother, uh, Mother Winslow on Family Matters. That's where yep. most people would know her from. Yeah, elderly yep. black woman. Uh, she does. She does the voice of Bertha. And Fritz the cat. I, I just, oh, just the, the, knowing that she is, is and Bertha says some foul shit <laughs> because you know X-ray movie in yeah. that movie, and she plays just knowing that the the grandmother from Family Matters is is doing that voice just cracks me up. She's but she did all kinds of great stuff. She's in Bruce's Millions and the Brother from Another Planet. She's a wonderful uh, black actress from way back in the day. But yeah, she's the voice in Fritz the Cat. That's just well, I mean, it it is it is effectively just a satire of the period yeah. and. Uh, it's it's social mores and it's taboos and everything else and you know uh, that's all that that Crum and Bakshi wanted to do. This was Bakshi's directing debut, his feature debut, by the yeah. way. And and that's all these movies are designed to do is just you know poke a hole in in the culture and uh, and really annoy people. Um, the Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat, uh, not as good. Yeah. Uh, it is and largely because uh, Rob Bakshi did not have anything to do with it. Uh, they this was Sam Arkoff, whom we we you know uh, yeah. It, we knew very well. We interviewed uh, for for Schlock. Uh, he kind of uh, so F- Steve Krantz originally was the guy who put all of this together. Steve Krantz was the producer of the original one, and then uh, when it became clear that that you know Bakshi didn't want to make another one, Krantz still had the rights, and Krantz went to Sam Markoff and said, um, "Would you, if I could put another one together, would you distribute it?" And so that's how it happened and uh instead of being like a, a semi mainstream release it became a Sam Arkoff production with Steve Krantz directed by a guy named Robert Taylor who is by no means anything close to um uh to Ralph Bakshi mm-hmm. and without without you know Crumb being involved in any way whatsoever so it's um it doesn't compare to the original but they've been released together so you can compare them and it still tries to satirize things a little bit uh, still tries to sort of poke holes in the politics. You know, it's not, uh, uh, the one was made in 72. The, the sequel was made in 74. In the middle there, uh, you, you kind of have Watergate blow up. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that that's referenced as well. So, I mean, it's an interesting comparison between yeah. the two films. Yeah. Uh, let's talk Billions season five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got a new, uh, it's, there's a new, the season five introduced a new, uh, cause Damien, Damien uh, left the show, right? Uh, uh, he's still he's still here in season five. Still season uh, did, five. Did okay. he has he has he left the show now? Yeah, he's he, and they got another guy that um, that that the Paul Giamatti is it Paul Giamatti? It, I always yeah, confuse. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is it's going up against now? So you know, uh, see that's the that's the problem is that they set this thing up as a as a a, a collision between these two guys. Yeah. And I don't. You just. I don't know that you can sustain that season. You can't. After season after season. <laughs> you can't. And and, and 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 somebody has to win one day. Yeah. You know. And uh, and then and so anyway. Yeah. I did. But no. 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 They had to See, milk it. Yeah. Well. Anyway. I mean, it's uh, it's well written. It's well made. But I do think that that fundamental tension is is a little bit too simplistic. So uh, Showtime's Billion season five. Uh, and, and all, this also features Juliana Margulies, who is wonderful. And I think if anything underused, but, uh, Damian Lewis, man, they, some, they, some billions say. always to, to my mind, the show, the nature of the show takes itself a little bit more seriously than say succession, um, yeah. uh, which is, you know, ludicrous and knows it's ludicrous. And, and, and there it is, you know, but billions is like, you know, you guys are just, you know, 
you don't, you don't, you, you all, they don't seem to realize that this is dumb. Uh, see, see, this is the thing. They set this show up and, and you, and you realize that neither of these guys is ever going to die. Yeah. Uh, if anything, they're going to leave the show, apparently. Yeah. So, so as opposed to something like Ozark, where really I've given up trying to predict who's going to survive that thing, because just when you think that, that somebody's, you know, become too big to die, they get a bullet in the head. <laughs> They're out. <laughs> and, and and they do that all the time on Ozark. And I'm like, oh, damn. Did you really? And then, and sometimes, sometimes on, on Ozark, not to give anything away, but sometimes you'll have a show where one person will kill somebody. And you think, oh, see, now we've inherited. Oh, damn, that person just died. <laughs> and the person that you that, that killed the other person then gets killed. And you're like, I, I, I give up. You're just messing with me now. Like now this is now you're now you're just laughing at me. I now you're it. just laughing I at me. It. We will not allow you. We will not allow you to get attached to anybody here. Oh, my gosh. So, Tim, um, uh, I hate to go to you on this, man. But seriously, uh, the All Black Network. Yes. So we got two shows there, House Divided in season three and For the Love of Jason season one. Um, is, is, how does this grow out of BET? And is there, is this, I mean, do these shows get a significant audience? That's well, you, you know, BET, TV One, uh, those networks don't really have all that much of significant, significant audiences, but the audiences that they do have watch these shows. Um, 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 uh, so, so, you know, uh, you, 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 X, X percent of the sort of black and, and, and Latinx population too, yeah. uh, are kind of, kind of, kind of into that stuff. So, um, it's significant in that everybody who they want to watch is watching. That's an interesting. Way so, so that's that's the way that's the way those things kind of work. As opposed to like saying, uh, what was that? What was the CW before it was the uh, before it was the CW? The Warner Bros. or Warner? The, oh the, the gosh, Bros. it was the it was what? the WB. The WB. The WB. The WB. Yeah. Thank you. And there was this moment when uh, the, the WB, you know, it was uh, it was was full. Uh, you know, LL Cool J had a show on there. The Wayans brothers uh the, the who are all, all middle-aged men now when they were young had a show on there uh, uh there was just all of these black shows on there you, you remember that period i do and and that's kind of where my question was which is which is that you know i i know enough actors from enough different backgrounds national backgrounds act you know accents and you know hispanic and black and asian and i've had this conversation with them and there's there's a there's there's a real sensitivity, and you can tell me if I'm wrong yeah. on this or if I've missed. But there's a real sensitivity about being. They don't want to do the stuff that is race specific or national specific. They want to break out of that that pigeonhole. It, 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 they, it, the ghettoizing. You know, it's like it's like you know German actors hate having to play Nazis in everything, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, like. Uh, and this goes all the way back to you know like Otto Preminger was like a he he was playing Nazis on on just about every movie forever. I mean that's why he liked directing because he could direct anything. But, but as an actor, as an actor, he always has to play Nazis, and mad scientists, <laughs> and or whatever. And else. Wear that monocle. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and I suppose that some of the difference is it has to do with the nature of the thing. So if you go back to uh, the middle seventies or the early seventies, uh, good times, right? And uh, and and you know this black family, poor black family living in the ghetto, and blah blah blah, and all that kind of stuff. A lot of black folks. Could not stand that 
It was the contextualization. Fast forward 10 years, 1980, whatever the hell it is, when the Cosby yeah. show comes on. This is an all-black show. Uh, yeah. But it, it's an all-black show. He's a doctor. She's a lawyer. The kids are all going to whatever they're doing in college. You know, it's this, it's this sort of middle-class show. Or family. I think we just talked about Family Matters. Same thing. Yeah, they yeah. Were, you know, he, he's just a cop in Family Matters. He's not a doctor. Uh, and it's just this middle class, mostly black but show. And those every, were, so that's every, the shape, it's the shape of it that matters. Every show that you've named from Good Times to the Jeffersons to the Cosby show to, uh, to, to, uh, uh Sanford and Son. I mean, we yeah. can go right down the line, but these are all network shows mm-hmm. that were aired in prime time to a national audience and which had, which, which did not, no one ever said, Oh, these are black shows for black people. I mean, I remember sitting every single Sunday with my very white parents and my German immigrant mother <laughs> watching the Jeffersons and loving it and watching my father laugh himself to tears and watching my mother, my German mother, just absolutely adore every character on that show. Yeah. And she, espe- she especially enjoyed like every time George gets into it with, with, uh, with, Oh, the maid, um, um, uh, uh, Marla Gibbs, Marla Gibbs. Marla oh Gibbs my character. gosh. Marla Gibbs was my mother's favorite character. Uh, uh, and you know why? Cause my mother had been a nanny. Uh, my mother knew what it meant to be a domestic and, and she related to, to that. Right. So there's a crossover thing with this where there's these universal things. And that's why I'm wondering, you know, if, this is a great on-ramp for a lot of these actors. I mean, to be able to get onto an all-black show, you can build a reel, you can, you know, develop, hone your skills and so forth. But is there a risk that you are becoming identified with something that'll make it harder to cross over when the time comes? It, 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 It could possibly be, but you also get this very specific thing of where you, 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 you will bring with you always a whole audience of people who know who you are. Great. But, but, but at, at, that, that thing that you were talking about with the Jeffersons, the Jeffersons, any given episode of the Jeffersons was literally seen by more people, black, white, everybody, everybody. Because you, 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 that's back when we were still, you know, 30 share. You do a 30 share, right? 30, a 30 yeah. share was usually 30 million people. It, yeah. The numbers were equivalent. Oh. 30 million people of every, like you said, you, your mom, everybody watched the Jeffersons as opposed to those shows that you're holding there. First of all, nowhere near 30 million people. I don't yeah. think I'm not even sure there's 30 million black people in America. <laughs> uh, uh, but, it, but if all of the black people in America watched it, there wouldn't be 30 million people. But everybody who is watching it, 99, not everybody, 99% of the folks who, who are watching those shows are black or Latinx. Uh, and very, I, I doubt that many, many of uh, the equivalent of your mother in 1978 or whatever we're talking about. Yeah, we were talking about will ever, ever, ever see those shows because they live yeah. in those pipelines. That's why. Well, we're talking about a house divided season three with uh, the most recognizable name here is uh, Lars Hilton Jacobs, yeah. who uh, who plays the, uh, the 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 kind of the patriarch uh, of the uh, the Sanders family in this thing, and it's you know it's a little dynasty ish, um, a little bit like Empire, except you know not. Empire, yeah. Um, Sherman, one- Sherman, 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 our, our our buddy Sherman, Stranger Things, yeah. and the actor. All we talk about, yeah. Sherman won't do him. He gets offers. Of course not. He, he gets offers all the time. He won't even. He won't even. He won't even read the script. Well, he shouldn't. He's on Stranger Things too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's no way. There's no way. That's a, it's a step down. And then, uh, and then for the love of Jason, season one, which is a a a new show about uh, life. 
I hate always saying that, but you know, <laughs> you know, he's a he's young guy, and you know, is it, it's time to kind of start living? And you know, what is he going to do? Is he going to get married? Is he going to keep being single? And you know, uh, all all that kind of stuff, which was a little bit like like that girl in 1974, yeah, or maybe yeah. Mary Tyler Moore show. So it's it's that kind of thing centered around a guy. Um, you know, uh, I can't tell. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't really know what to make of a whole season of this, but uh, it you know it's a show and somebody created it and they're making money and yeah yes and that and I and, and I go there too. You know, even as I poke these things, I'm thinking to myself, these people are all working. Uh, you know, yeah, that, that those are a bunch of writers guild writers who wrote. And, 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 and I'm like, so maybe I need to shut up. Uh, but uh, well, but, that's what, that's another thing that, but, that Iger says in that inter, in that podcast interview. He says everybody's writing and everybody's working, and I'm thinking, well, I'm not. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> so, why don't you point me in the right direction? Um, and then uh, season one of the uh, the Gamora series, based on the movie. Oh yeah, uh, also from Kino Lorber. Um, this is. Uh, you know, Sight and Sound's quote on this is printed right on the cover, which is Italy's answer to Breaking Bad. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that that's quite that accurate. I uh, mean, it, it's I, I get what they're trying to do. They're they're looking to make a connection and get that Breaking Bad audience into this. It's 12 episodes. Uh, it's a really potent show. I think the show's better than the movie. I'm not yeah. a big fan of the movie, to Me. be honest. Um, but it's uh, you know, it's it, I, I don't. It's more of a I don't know how to even compare this. I mean, it's maybe maybe Ozark is even a better one. I mean, it is it is indeed all about the uh, this incre- this horrible crime family in in Naples, and uh, it, it's I, I, you can't even really compare it to um, the Sopranos. It, it it's not as sort of tame as the Sopranos. It's really it's really violent. Mm. I mean, it's really violent. Yeah. It really shocks you. Uh, but it's designed to, and the uh, the one thing I will say about it is, even though it's a, it's very gritty, and I don't know where this thing is going to go as a series, but I do like it better than the movie, and I do think the production value is top notch. It is mm. better than most Italian movies these days, which mm. I never thought I'd say. And then you got Animal Kingdom. Oh yeah, that's, that's the, that's crime the, families. That, 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 yeah, yeah. Crime now, of course, that was a movie. Yeah, <laughs> great me. movie, Australian, and Australian movie, and and but the movie is better than the series. Yes, the, the movie, movie is, is the other way around. Is. Yeah, the, that's that's true. I mean, also a crime family stories, but they part of the problem here is they transplanted it to the U.S. Yeah. I mean, I think it works better when you leave it in Australia. But I, I get what they did. Uh, I get why they did it, and uh, I, you know, it's yeah. I kind of feel like they're they're this is in its fifth season now, and I it's kind of treading water. I. I I've watched this intermittently over mm. the course of the five seasons, and it really does now feel like they're starting to repeat themselves. Mm. Um, you know, Ozark, to its credit, realizes that if it runs any longer than this current season, that it's that it's that's going to start to repeat itself. Mm. We've pretty much stretched Ozark as far as we can go. It's in the fourth season. They got you know they they stretched that out to seven uh, fourteen episodes. The first seven of which are already on Netflix, mm. and rather shocking. Have you watched any of that yet? Not this. Not 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 yet. I'm I'm way behind, dude. I'll tell you the the last five minutes of of uh, episode seven. Uh, wow! I just I, <laughs> I, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, anyway, that's Animal Kingdom. Uh, Riverdale, yeah. Also in its fifth season. Uh, I never cared uh, for what they did to my Archies, man. Uh, in yeah. this in this wacky show, I just you know I'm like it's it's the Archies. Why why are you taking my Archies all dark? Why you why why they're yeah, all? I, uh, it's so I don't know. whatever. 
It's like, I mean, who, who pitches that? I got a great pitch for you. We're going to take the Archies, right? The, the comedy animated show that a whole generation loves because they were sweet and funny and animated. And we're going to basically do, um, make them serious and brooding and not animated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't understand. I, like, that's like the opposite of the lower decks. Like, we're going to take Star Trek and we're going to turn it into Family Guy. Like who th- who comes up with this stuff? I don't mm-hmm. I don't get it. Anyway, mm-hmm. fifth season of Riverdale also seems to be a little bit running on fumes. Yeah, a uh, few minutes that we have left. Let's just uh, we have Night Gallery season Ooh. one. Yeah, Night Gallery season one out on Blu-ray, uh, which is a welcome thing. This has been out several times previously. I'm just going to tell people you got to get this one. It's you got to double dip and get rid of the previous ones because this has some wonderful audio commentaries on it. Uh, really, really great stuff on on uh, on so many of these episodes, um, and you know it's Night Gallery. It's like full color Twilight Zone. I don't know how you don't get that. It's really, yeah. really great. Yeah. Um, from Acorn TV, uh, Finding Alice series one. This is very, very sweet and uh, and lovely and awesome and uh, and pretty great. Yeah. Uh, this is a um, it's a it's a single woman. Oh, how do I how do I describe this without without kind of blowing the the setup? No, yeah. um, it's uh, it it's another one of these. How do you restart life yeah. movies? Yeah, yeah, <coughs> or a series. Sorry, it's uh, six episodes, British drama, and and a woman who, for reasons that I won't get into, has to kind of reinvent her life and uh, and all of her relationships and, and, you know, carry on. And it's done in a really, really sweet, poignant way and uh, has a really, really great sporting cast. Gemma Jones is in Oh, Gemma Lumley. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a really, really sweet show. Uh, Keely Hawes is the star. She's absolutely terrific. And, um, you know, I can't wait to see more of it. That's the series one. Um, the Last Tycoons is a documentary series all about the... Um, the great French producers of the new wave period and, and both before and after who, who basically um, kind of defined what we understand as French cinema today. And they always get overlooked because the filmmakers are the ones yeah. that focus on in France. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these are people like Anatole Dauman and uh, Alain Poiret and Jacques Perrin, a lot of others. Uh, it, they're, these are the guys who sort of took a back seat let the filmmakers step up. They pulled the money together. They pulled the talent together. They made the deals happen and they let everybody else kind of take the glory. And now this is their chance to sort of uh, shine through. So it's a really, really great eight part um, documentary series from Icarus films. It's, and you'll learn a lot about, you know, French movies of the last 40, 50, 60 years. It's really, really very interesting. And a lot of interesting movies talked about. So good film education. A Cayman writer zero one, um, is uh, one of these live action kind of quasi anime shows that that is a step up from um, step up from Ultraman barely. Yeah. Uh, have you watched any any anything like this? No. Uh, four, it it's 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 kind of uh, I'm I sort of enjoy it, but I don't I'm not proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a it's a little bit Robocopy too. Um, Anyway, it's it's a uh, forty six episodes, a Japanese series, um, all about this uh, company that has taken AI to the next level and created these 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 robots that look like villains from Power Rangers, and um, 
it, it's it's all about the um, the fallout of of that and the interface between humans and what they call you know human gears and uh, and yeah it it uh, it feels very Robocopy very Power Rangery very Ultra Manny but uh, it I for reasons that I just can't quite figure out I I can't be snarky about it I kind of enjoy it it's sort of got a a weird edge to it a kind of cyberpunky edge that's really cool so anyway that's on blu-ray that's cayman riders zero one and uh it's the complete series with real x time which i have no idea what that actually even is but <laughs> there it is there it is uh tim let's just let's just hang it up with uh, these last three 4ks last night in soho uh, did you get a chance to watch last night in soho yeah yeah so for the so for the radio show um you know edgar edgar there um, and you, this, this very stylish production, young woman, um, um, uh, goes off to, uh, to, to, to Soho in, in London to become a designer. Uh, and, uh, years earlier, her mother had done the same thing and it didn't go well. And her, and now her auntie doesn't really want her to go, but she goes anyway and she takes this, this room in this house and she starts having these dreams and, uh, transport her back to 1969. Uh, where she's experiencing this sort of mirrored life. It's a really complicated story, and it's 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 okay. What I like most about it is Diana Rigg, um, uh, Mrs. Peel, uh, is in it. Uh, this elderly nice. woman that runs this this house, and she's just as fabulous and delightful in this as she ever was as uh, Mrs. Peel. She just stayed that way her whole entire life. We lost her, I guess, last year, right? Uh, maybe, uh, yeah, 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 something yeah, like that. It was, it was just uh, not too many months ago. Not yeah, too many months year. ago. Uh, so the wonderful, uh, but it's, it's, it's an okay movie. You know, it's not, it's no baby driver or, or, or anything like that, but it's a, you know, it's an all right little movie. Well, that's on 4k and, uh, it's beautiful on 4k. It's absolutely oh, yeah. stunning. Oh, yeah. It comes with the movies anywhere code and the whole thing. And, uh, you know, Edgar Wright, uh, really was supposed to be our, uh, our director of Ant-Man and he had a falling out. So, <clears throat> he moved on to things like Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho, and he hasn't uh, he hasn't rejoined the MCU, but he's paved himself a very very nice little career. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the last two 4Ks here: uh, The Lover, the great amazing French film uh, based on the um, uh, based on the the novel by. Oh my gosh, Tim! I'm drawing a total blank right now. Oh uh, uh, yeah, who? It's, who um, uh, for fuck's sake. Uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, Duras. Uh, 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 yes, thank you, Margaret Duras. Duras, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Hey, wait. Margaret Duras. Yeah. Thank you. Gosh, uh, this is what these shows do to me. They just suck <laughs> my brain out. Based on the great Margaret Duras novel, yeah. uh, I actually saw this in Paris. Believe it or not. Oh, yeah. Well, it yeah. was like this, is like ninety. It ninety two, I think it was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, it, it was ninety two, and I was on my way to my first Cannes Film Festival. There it is again, but. This really kind of got ripped for its um, as being kind of soft, Corey. Yeah, and I think I think people misunderstood exactly the the, the what Margaret Duras was. Um, but I actually think this is a very very it's a beautiful film. Yeah, Jean Jacques Jean Jacques Anou just directs the hell out of it. Yeah. What it does is you know it captures a a time and place, which is this 1920s period in French uh, colonial Indochina and how the the what the cultural landscape was pre war. Before things, you know, disintegrated in the 1950s and, mm. and how, you know, Indo-Chinese slash Vietnamese society and culture and French culture, uh, where they were able to sort of merge and sit comfortably and where they weren't and how it all kind of uh, folds in with this this particular very taboo relationship, which involves an underage French girl mm. and, uh, oh, and and, and, and an, yeah. and a Chinese man played yeah. by. Uh, and it was funny. 
I, I rem- and I shouldn't say this on the podcast, but I remember talking to a friend of mine, a producer, a very, very hetero- heterosexual producer who saw the movie and was so floored at how sexy Tony Leung is in this. And this is the yeah. other Tony Leung. This is, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Tony Leung Kafai, as they say in Hong Kong, not yeah. the Tony Leung from the, from uh, the, uh, the, the John Woo film. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I remember he, he he came back and he and, and he was just he was saying sort of lascivious things to me about like, you know, even I wanted to touch him. Uh, <laughs> you know, he just looks so good in this. He looks so good. He's so beautifully shot. So anyway, this is on 4K. It's an unexpected kind of custom 4K. Did not see this uh, coming, but I think it's a great thing for the 4K format. That this is out because now it sort of says it's okay. You can take, you know, you can go to 4K with movie with, you know, foreign films and independent films and horror films and everything else. And, mm. you know, between the toolbox murders and the lover in the same week on 4K, <laughs> I think 4K has gone mainstream. Yeah, perhaps it has. Super duper young Jane March. In oh, that movie. gosh, she's so good. Uh, a couple of years later, she was in the, she, uh, that unfortunate uh, uh, color of night. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, the Bruce Willis yep. movie and kind of undid did her career there for a while. But indeed, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's too bad. And then uh, Halloween Kills, the extended cut. I think you covered this on the radio too. Didn't yeah, you? yeah, I'm I did. sorry. That's okay. uh, what? Uh, what? Do, do we need this? Did we need another Halloween? Do we need it on 4K? First of all, well, look, the, 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 the thing, the thing, because you know, so 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 this movie, the one thing that this movie did is it picks up. Um, literally where the uh, other movie left off. You remember how Halloween one yeah. and then Halloween two literally picks up they're, they're, they're right there. That's what that movie did. This movie tries to do the same thing. It ignores a bunch of Halloweens. There've been a bunch of Halloweens. There were even remakes of Halloween, yeah. you know, so, so it ignores, it has to ignore a bunch of movies in order to reconnect itself to the, to the original lineage of the films. But no, it, it, it does this thing of where it tries to connect. This is a, what's his name? Uh, David Gordon Green. Yeah. What's, uh, yeah I'm like, why, 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 you know, why are you even over here in this genre? I cannot figure out his career. The guy, the, this is the guy who made George Washington. Oh, this beautiful, dramatic thought, oh little movie. Gosh, yeah. you're, you're, you're like the new Malik. And then he goes off and he does stuff like, Oh, like, your highness, your highness is like, what? And now <laughs> this, like, dude, get back on track. What is uh, wrong? But, well, you know what? He made, you know this, what? He, he made this drama called Snow Angels, I think. Very dramatic. You know, yeah. Thing like yeah. that. It didn't make a nickel. Sam Rockwell. Yeah, all kind of it. And, he, and I think that scared the crap out of him. Uh, yeah. and, and he wouldn't start hanging out with boys and making these, these goofy movies. So, you know, yeah. whatever. Uh, if, 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 you, if you want to live inside the sort of Halloween lineage, the one thing that movie does do is connect it back to that, those original two films. And you yep. can just sort of like pretend like the other movies don't exist. Yeah. Well, there it is. And uh, then very, very lastly, I want to uh, make mention of The Great Postal Heist, which is this really interesting doc. People should check out. Uh, this is from Cinema Libre Studios. And uh, I don't want to, you know, badmouth the post office. We all, you know, the uh, post office takes a lot of hits. Yeah. But this is um, this is basically centering on the the director's father. Jay Gallione is the, is the director of this thing. And his father was a postal clerk for 30 years and um, endured a horribly toxic workplace culture for just being a decent guy. And uh, this is kind of an expose of that, the hostility of that culture. And it, it really does help you understand how the postal system is manipulated 
in our governmental structure, mm-hmm. who kind of uses it for what and, and, and how it becomes a political football and how its financing becomes political football. And you also understand how, where the phrase go postal comes from, because it literally has driven people to the edge. Mm. And um, it, it gets to that, uh, it gets kind of to the root of all of that stuff in a very, very interesting way and a, and a very troubling way. It's, it's very um, pointed. The doc, is very, it, it, the, the doc is very pointed in saying that this has to do with the sort of systematic dismantling of this yeah. in, in, in privatization. And there's, there's a group of people who want to do that. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and, uh, it, 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 I don't know. For me, it's very, very simple. Ben Franklin founded the post office. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ben Franklin knew exactly what he was doing and exactly how he wanted it to be done. And for whatever reason, when we decided we we wanted to undo that, we just made a mess of the whole entire thing. It, and, and, it, and part of it is, again, the, 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 these are all of these pressures that are always threatening the post office with this, threatening it with that, threatening it with this. And, it's, and, it, and there's no sort of stability with the post office because they're always under the threat of some political mm-hmm. uh, manipulation. So um, and, and, you know, I remember talking to our, our local guy here who, who uh, before he retired, I knew him very, very well. And I would ask him, I'd be like, you know, he, they'd always roll their eyes. He's like, man, everybody in the post office hates the people that run the post office. <laughs> they do. They just, it's like, because they don't ever do what's right for the rank and file. And I said, well, what's the solution? He says, raise postage rates. Yeah. And not a lot, yeah. just a little bit. You know, you just, you just sometimes have to raise the rates a little bit, but they, 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 they tinker with things and then they have these deals with FedEx. Anyway, it's all this other stuff, but it, you know, it's, um, it's it anyway. It's a really it's a it's a solid doc, and it's uh you know it's a, it's a, it's a it's something you should be familiar with just to better understand it, at a minimum the inner workings of the what is probably the most daily um the the the, the one federal agency that we have the most interaction with daily. Yeah. I mean you know literally the post office comes to your house every day every day <laughs> just so, about every day yeah it's about so that program, yeah. Yeah. That's the part of the government you interact with the most, and uh, you know whether you got whether you got kids in school or not, whether you you have Medicare or not, you interact you interact with the post office. All, all I know is this: uh, across the, the, my my young life, uh, I could write a letter to my grandmother uh, in Tennessee, and I could literally just put uh, you know uh, a Sally Taylor, uh, you know Route Ten, Tennessee, uh, and yeah. that letter got to my grandmother. There it is. Uh, and and, and uh, FedEx can't do that. <laughs> FedEx, that, that will break FedEx. Uh, yep. uh, but that letter always got to my grandmother because I don't know what that is about the post office, but, but it worked that way. So anyway, anyway, there we go. There it is. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we've, uh, we've done a long show today, but it's, uh, it's been good. It's been a few weeks. So, uh, Tim, I think, uh, let, let's, let's, you know, when we come back, we'll be talking about Oscar nominations and yeah. see, uh, I, I have no predictions to make this year. I mean, I know Belfast will be in there. I know licorice pizza will be in there. Couldn't tell you what else is going to be in there. Well, you know, yeah, it's 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 a weird. T- I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking King Richard is still going to be. People will still be talking about you, you, that. You think so? Do you uh, think do you think that you think people remember that, or is it or is it too commercial? I, I you know, it, it, people like Will Smith. I'll put it like that. Yeah. And yeah. and and people have been thinking to themselves, we really need to do something special for Will Smith for a long yeah. long time now. Uh, uh, so I think that because this is this is really inside baseball, man. This this has less to do with the actual film going public this year than it ever has uh, the yeah. actual film going public uh, and what the film going public, uh, you know, thinks and has done and will do and all that kind of stuff is less connected. It's always an inside thing, but, uh, but generally speaking, you know, you'd have a black Panther or something out there that made a, you know, a couple of trillion dollars and, 
and, uh, and, and the Academy would pay attention to that, you know, like, you know, that movie over there made a lot of money. Uh, yeah. uh but you know, other than that Spider-Verse movie and, and, and a few in bond made a few bucks, but you can't really, you know, give best pictures to either one of those films. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. House of Gucci didn't happen. Uh, Last Duel didn't happen. Uh, you know, all these big ones that they thought the still water didn't happen. So, you know, it's, it's a troublesome situation, bro. Yes, it is. Yes, it is indeed. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, the, you know, the, the question marks for me have been uh, the, the really commercial films, and I'm curious as to whether they will be rewarded. I don't think there's a, I don't think any Marvel films are going to be in the mix. Dune in tech categories, yes. yes. Will it make it in the others? Mm-hmm. You know, King Richard, certainly one of my favorite movies of the year, but I think Will, outside of Will Smith, anything, you know, those are the question marks. I don't know. I don't know. But I will be shocked if we don't see uh, something big for both Belfast and Licorice Pizza, those are the two that I think are going to get uh, in a lot of love. And, 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 and which is which is which is fine, right? So both of those movies, good movies, both of them, right? But if you think about it again, with respect to you know the big movie going public, most of the movie going public have never heard of Licorice Pizza, let alone not seen it. And this is why, why coming back, this is why I think eventually the Oscars are going to have to say, got to be in a hundred theaters. You got to be in a hundred theaters for people to know what the movie is, to for them to have made an effort to see it, and therefore make an effort to watch a TV show celebrating these movies. You have to get more of those movies into more theaters and get people out to see. Them. You yeah. just have to. You know, it's the only way the Oscars will survive. All right, all right, brother. Tim, have a great one, everybody. We'll see you next time.